Hello, I'm Kathy. And I'm Gary. And this is Torah Talk. Welcome to Torah Talk, the intersection of the mundane and the miraculous. Here we have bold conversations about faith, culture, and politics, and where we fit into God's plans in the 21st century. If you could partner with God, would you? In 1408, the English Parliament passed the Constitutions of Oxford, which forbade anyone from translating or reading a part of the Bible in the language of the people without the permission of the church authorities. Men and women were even burned for teaching their children the Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments in English. William Tyndale, however, had a calling from God to make the Bible available to every Englishman. He went to London to ask the Bishop Tunsdall if he could be authorized to make an English translation of the Bible, but the bishop would not grant his approval. In 1524, Tyndale sailed to Germany. In Hamburg, he worked on the New Testament, and in Cologne, he found a printer who would print the work. However, news of, the, of Tyndale's activity came to an opponent of the Reformation who had, press, who had the press raided. Tyndale escaped with the printed pages and made his way to another German city where the New Testament was soon published. 6,000 copies were printed and smuggled into England. The bishops did everything they could to eradicate the Bibles. Bishop Tunstall had copies ceremoniously burned at St. Paul's. An Archbishop of Canterbury brought up, bought up copies and destroyed them. In 1534, Tyndale was arrested by imperial forces and thrown into prison. After a year and a half in prison, he was brought to trial for heresy, for believing, among other things, in the forgiveness of sins and that mercy offered in the gospel was enough for salvation. He was accused of maintaining that faith alone justifies. In August 1536, he was condemned. On October 6, 1536, he was strangled and his body burned at the stake. His last prayer was, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. After this message, let's talk heresy and let's talk Torah. Long ago, God declared his redemptive plans for the world he created. Unfortunately, most people have ignored these plans. Now, as the end draws near, believers and non-believers are being irresistibly drawn to the celebration of the biblical feasts which outline God's plan of redemption for mankind in the world. If you found yourself curious about the biblical feasts and you want to know how and why Christians celebrate these holidays, read Declaring the End from the Beginning, Our Past and Future Revealed in the Biblical Feasts. In this book, author Kathy Martirosian delves into the history and culture surrounding the biblical feast days of ancient Israel, as well as how Yeshua, our Messiah, has fulfilled four of these holy days in the past and how he will fulfill the other three when he returns. Visit TorahTalk21.com to purchase Declaring the End from the Beginning, our past and future revealed in the biblical feasts. Gary, when I was 
preparing the opening of this podcast, I decided that I would get up and walk around my house and count all the Bibles that I have access to. Right away, I counted 10, and I wasn't really looking that hard. Yeah. You know, all different versions of the Bible. I had them right there at my fingertips. That did not include my phone or the access I had on my computer or anything like that. That's a great point. I know that we have... Over a dozen in this house. Exactly. And that's not counting the phone or the computer. Someone even gave me a NASCAR Bible one time. A NASCAR, a NASCAR Bible. Bible. That's how common they are. I mean, you know, Hebraic roots, Jewish, uh, complete Right. Jewish I have Bible. an American Patriots Bible. Okay. My daughter had a young woman's devotional Bible. You mm-hmm. know, all these different versions. And we yeah. just take that for granted. And do. yet, you just read a story where the leadership in the church was confiscating Bibles and burning them. Uh, unbelievable. Think, think about the irony of that for a moment, you know, the leaders of the church not wanting you to read the Bible. You know, that really goes along with this theme that we've been addressing, and that's the reluctance of the church institution, okay, to accept any challenge to its authority or its cherished I'll call them doctrines of men, okay? Traditions of men is what Jesus called them. And we've talked about the general resistance of Christians to move outside their theological paradigms to question where their beliefs came from and do they actually line up with Scripture. Mm. So, folks, if you've listened to our last podcast, we covered the story of Copernicus and the Jews. And in that idea, we were talking once again about the church institution as a whole that had centered itself in the middle of God's plan of salvation, rather than centering Israel in God's plan of salvation. And just like the whole cosmology of the earth-centered universe that Copernicus identified was incorrect, Mm -hmm. um, the church had to eventually realize that its cosmology was incorrect. And I say had to eventually realize, I'm not sure that they have eventually realized that its cosmology, uh, you know, church-centered cosmology is wrong. The church-centered part is is still there because, you know, even with overwhelming uh, evidence, 1948. Yeah, 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 you know, and Israel. It's still being fought. Exactly. So, so we were talking about that, and I encourage you, if you haven't listened to that podcast, that you go back and listen to that. And prior to that, in the podcast called Our Lizard Brains, uh, we were talking about just general resistance that human beings have to change, mm-hmm. and then specifically about those of us who identify as Christian and say, you know, changing our uh, paradigm paradigms in the way that we look at things. It's just very, very difficult to do. Yeah. Yeah. We talked about the idea that it takes bloody trauma. It takes bloody yeah, trauma. And which is not something we really want to have to go through. <laughs> we're hoping that this program helps people avoid that bloody That's trauma. That's right. So this week, we're going to delve into the topic of heresy. Heresy. Well, let's look, let's look at the definition of heresy. Is the belief or opinion profoundly at odds with that that is generally accepted? In the area of religion, it is the belief or opinion contrary to orthodox religious, especially Christian, doctrine. So that concept of heresy really developed within the Christian context, okay, and of uh, the Christian orthodox idea is this, anything that goes against it 
is, is heresy, or, right? And, and thus, you know, resulting in potentially burning at the stake. Exactly. That's how serious this was. Exactly. The irony is that the original meaning of heresy was simply an opinion. Isn't it sad that you can't have an opinion that is opposed? I mean, that sounds very familiar today. Yeah, we understand uh, you know, that in all sorts of ways, all unfortunately. Sorts of ways today. Um, but there was not a negative connotation with that word initially. The negative connotation associated with the term heresy is purely a church concept. And remember the difference in, in Greek and Hebrew paradigms? You know, we talked about this before, Kathy, often. Yes. Hebrew is concerned with actions and behaviors. The, that which you, you do. Greek is concerned with how you think. Thus, the church is all about creeds and statements of faith. The church is always interested in having everyone think the same way. Deviations in thought are threatening to the church stability and power. And again, that is exactly what we're seeing in the political circles today. If you think differently than those who are in power, you are a threat. Exactly. Yes. And all sorts of efforts to take you out at that point That's and right. to silence you. You know, William Tyndall's story is a fascinating one. I mean, it just, um, it's one of those, you're like, if I had been there at that time, could I have done that? It was Good just point. amazing, yeah. like Corey Ten Boom, right. you know, that kind of thing. Sure. You know, he was trying to allow the general public, the lay people, access to God's word. The church saw this as a threat because if the church controlled the message, they could control what people thought and what they did. Mm -hmm. And of course, the big one was that they were they had convinced people or told people that in order to get forgiveness, they had to pay the church right. that selling of indulgences. You know, so if the ordinary people read the Bible, they could form their own opinions. OK, and, and based on truth and the church would lose its control over them. So church leadership was adamant about squashing these new ideas and understandings. Tyndall was a significant threat, so significant that Tyndall had to die. Wow, it's so sad. It really is. And it's a common theme. It is. It's a pattern, unfortunately. Oh, and we're oh going to be looking at not that. Just not just one individual. Yeah, we've seen this with the multitudes. And and you mentioned okay the motivation. What's the motivation? I talked about control. It's it's two things. It's money and power. Right. It's always, it always money is. and power. Yeah. You know. So in the system established by the institutional church, the people needed the pope to forgive their sins or the priests to forgive mm -hmm. their sins and to tell them what to do to please God. The church maintained its power over the people by keeping these people ignorant of the truth. The Pope and his clergy had enormous power. Yes, it did. I mean, when you think about it and, and then think about what this meant historically, think about the Spanish Inquisitions in the, in the 1400s. That's less than a half a century before Tyndale. That's good to keep that uh, timeline, you know, yeah. there. So, yeah. so we're here. We got patterns going. Right, <laughs> right. And, and what what results? I mean, my gosh, we we think about the the horrors of this. The Inquisitions, uh, they were judicial courts set up in Spain, ostensibly to combat heresy in in Christian Spain. In practice, the Spanish Inquisition served to consolidate power, there it is again, power in the monarchy of the newly unified Spanish kingdom. And that, again, is a, is a common theme, this unifying of power. That's right. We know that. In other words, the king wanted to unify the, the people and found that the best way to do so was a unified religion. Why religion? 
why not you know country based on something other than religion you know sports language you know music well wouldn't that be nice wouldn't that be nice simple you know peaceful but because religion carries with it the authority of god who can question that don't you don't you fight you know you face that all the time kathy somebody says well god told me oh yeah and then you're like okay we're done done. you can't can't argue with that you know and you know talk about patterns emperor constantine did the same thing Remember, we, we, we've talked about this. We, they, the, the Roman Empire was divided at the time. And he, you know, he was trying to unify it militarily, but he found the power in unifying it under one religion. And you know, that was back in the 4th century. Exactly. Yeah, so exactly. this is a pattern, obviously. Yes. In 324, Constantine wrote that he had come to the the farthest shores of Britain as God's chosen instrument for the suppression of impiety. And in a letter to the Persian king, he proclaimed that, that aided by the divine power of God, he had come to bring peace and prosperity to all lands. Wow. So once again, well, who can say otherwise, right. you know? I mean, he's, he's, the, he's the representative God on the earth. I mean, this sounds like, well, you know, Pharaoh. Right. You know, Pharaoh. King, the king of England. Or, exactly. Or, yeah, it's, exactly. It's a pattern. It's well, a pattern. you know, even if you go back and you look at, I remember studying in 10th grade, the Holy Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, that was Western Central Europe. We're talking about 800 um, AD to about 1800 AD. Mm-hmm. Hung out. It, it, it hung around for a while the first title that charlemagne is known to have used immediately after his coronation in in 800 is charles most serene augustus crowned by god great and pacific emperor governing the roman empire (laughs) that's a lot on a business card pride coming (laughs) yes yes (laughs) but there it is crowned crowned by god You know, so so in Europe, there was this concept. It was called the divine right to rule or also the divine right of kings. And it was a political doctrine. And it asserted that the monarchs derived their authority straight from God and therefore cannot be held accountable for their actions by human means. That means Mm -hmm. nobody could bring them into court for anything that they did. Okay, they can't be held responsible. The king was basically God. You said Pharaoh, exact same thing. You know, so what we've got here is the ultimate example of state-sponsored religion. And it was almost an unstoppable force. That's why it was used all the time. It, it almost was. Well, yeah. I mean, I, we've seen cracks in that. Obviously, it's still, there are still elements of it all over. But this was the very reason why we see the, the individual sailing to the new world to get, escape it. Exactly. Yeah, and, and we see the efforts by our founding fathers to to keep that from happening, to yes. keep a uh, from to keep America from having a state sponsored religion. Yes. Those guys were brilliant. I, I, I 100 percent agree. They were brilliant. They saw what happened historically. They did everything they could to prevent it from happening in the future. And the, the idea of, of being believers, but not allowing the state to control how you were to believe. I mean, they were brilliant. They were brilliant. And and now I think they were representatives of God. <laughs> More so than um, what we've seen exactly. historically. Other, and other and other they were following biblical guidelines, they too. Were. You know, they were. So. They were trying to protect us. And sadly, that even has been perverted. You know, this idea of separation of church and state has been twisted to mean the exactly. opposite of what they intended it to mean. You know, what's interesting when you go back to the Bible, though, Gary, is... 
God always gives us choice. Mm -hmm. Okay. So this is a perversion of even what God is doing when they say this is, you're going to be burned at the stake. If you disagree on all, you know, a threat of death, believe this way. God didn't do that. Now there were natural consequences of choosing behaviors or choosing death. You know, I said before you life and death choose, choose life, but he didn't make anybody Clearly, he didn't make anybody because Israel continued to choose, continued to choose the wrong, wrong way. Path. Exactly, yeah, that's as, a great point. as we do too. But you know, going back to Constantine, what happened when he consolidated power under this new Christian? I'll put quotes around it. Religion. <laughs> what happened was all things deemed Jewish. I'll put quotes around that. Became heresy. That's right. You know, so he forbade the honoring of the Sabbath. The celebration of Passover, biblical things were considered heresy, while man-made things were honored and promoted. Mm. And you think about that, and you think about the uh, Council of Nicaea, literally where they were outlawing things of the Bible, That's literally, right? right? That's right. And, and, and promoting, um, you know, this new concept, well, when the new concept, this very old pagan concept of Sunday, yeah. that was being promoted. And the other, of course, was being suppressed, outlawed at the threat of death yeah. again. Well, once, once again, is, is basically what, you know, we're identifying, they wouldn't admit, but it, God is in the way here. That's right. His word is in the way of their doctrine, of their power grab, of their, of their desires. That's what we're identifying here. Mm-hmm. I mean, because why were the Jews, uh, you know, of all things, the, the Jewish target? You know, exactly. why, why, why was that the case? Because the Jews always represented God's real purpose on the earth. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that is, that's the bottom line. I, and and this, you know, they're central to God's plan of redemption, and the Pope is not. <laughs> but boy, we're going to get in trouble with that one maybe, but that's okay. It's, we're, we're sharing the truth. Israel is central to God's plan of redemption, and the Pope is not. Nor is the Holy Roman Emperor, uh, or, or the or the King, or the Queen, or the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh, no matter, no no one is. Nothing is, you know, besides besides what God has, has set aside. And the Jewish people, their form of worship, while not always what God wanted, was still the most representative of God's nature and character. Therefore, the Jewish, or I'd say, I'd say, biblical form yes. of worship, had not been it had not been eradicated. Not only were the Jews considered heretics, but so were the Christians who did anything that looked Jewish. That's right. And they had to get rid today. of that. They yeah. had to get rid of that. It's like everything that looked Jewish, it had to go. Yeah. And 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 it was heresy. Everything, but but once again, if you look back, it was not Jewish. It was biblical. It's biblical. That's, see, that's the thing. I mean, I have heard this. I know you have too. You know, what's all this Jew stuff? Why are you doing all this Jewish <laughs> Many stuff? times. And it's like, it's not Jew stuff, or it's not Jewish stuff. And you can hear the anti-Semitism in that comment, that's by the right. way, Jew stuff. But it's a way of life. The Jewish people were representing the biblical way of life, the the standard, the code of conduct that God gave. So this is a way of life. It's God's way, not Jew stuff. 
Right. They didn't come up with this on they their own. They didn't come up. No. No. They, they, were the, they were representative. They, were, they delivered it to us. Under them were given the oracles of God, as, as Paul, Paul said. said. Yes. Right? So we're sitting here today as believers in the one true God, the creator of the universe, thanks to the Jewish people who were the vehicle that brought us this information. You know, I was just reminded, as you were saying that, of uh, the scene in Fiddler on the Roof, where he says, I know we're the chosen people, but we're just once, or, you know, could you, could you just someone choose someone? Else? Someone else. It wasn't yeah. by their choice. No, it, it was... wasn't because, you know, they were better, Paul says, than anybody else or a bigger group than anybody else. It was because God just decided he so. just decided. And they have paid a huge price for being a representative people. And that's where that's the sentiment of what, what he was saying in Fiddler on the Roof, mm-hmm. because it was it was hard. It still is hard. They're still they're still paying a price. I mean, look at how Israel is hated oh, by the nations yes. of the world, because that little tiny nation represents the one true God in the earth. That's in right, and His faithfulness. And His faithfulness, yes, absolutely right. So you know, if we look at the early church fathers, they too labeled all things Jewish heresy. Mm-hmm. We're seeing it today. We're, yes, we're, it's it's no different. Um, we look, take a look at Ignatius, the Bishop of Antioch. He claimed in his epistle to the Philippians at the beginning of the second century, and he said that Satan fights along with the Jews to the denial of the cross, and that if anyone celebrates the Passover along with the Jews or receives emblems of their feasts, he is a partaker in those that killed the Lord and his apostles. Oh my gosh, the hatred, the accusations, you know, this is what this is what permeated the early so-called church. You know, I, we brought up John Chrysostom. I have a hard time with his yeah. name every <laughs> okay. single time. So we're talking about around 387 AD. And, you know, he followed along the same line of condemnation um, of anything that deemed Jewish. So there's this quote, and I want you guys to, the audience, to really listen to this quote here um, and, and the implications of what it means. He wrote, what is this disease, Mm. the festivals of the pitiful and miserable Jews. There are many in our ranks who say they think as we do. Yet some of these are going to watch the festivals and others will join the Jews in keeping their feast and observing their fast. I wish to drive this perverse custom from the church right now. If I should fail to cure those who are sick with the Judaizing disease, I'm afraid that because of their ill-suited association and deep ignorance, some Christians may partake in the Jews' transgressions. For if they hear no word from me today, they will join the Jews in their fast. Once they've committed the sin, it will be useless for me to apply the remedy. Oh, God help us. I mean... So here he is identifying things of the Bible, God's word, as perverse, sick, a disease. Um, Yeah. uh, He's basically saying, heaven forbid you should do what God asks you to do. You have to do what we asked you to do. Yeah, he almost went a step further than Satan. Satan said, did God really say that? And he's going, (laughs) you know, he's going, don't ever do that. That's awful, whatever, you know, that is. And, and, And yet assigning it not recognizing he didn't did he did he read the word i always wonder about that you know he he had access to the word he was a church sure leader did. Sure did. but that whole when the church separated 
everything changed. That's what we've been talking it about. Did. Everything changed. And, and, and for some reason, even though they could read the word for themselves, instead of saying what God said, these are my feasts. Exactly. They called them the Jewish Exactly. Feasts. And you know, that verse in Leviticus 23, literally says, speak to the Israelites and say, these are my appointed feasts, uh, my appointments. It doesn't say... Okay, and then it says, my appointed feast, the feast of Yahovah, that you are to proclaim. Did that say the Jewish feast? It never says the It Jewish doesn't feast. say that. Gives, so they're saying, you know, we're, God is trying to instruct us, his children, through initially the, the, the Israelites. This is how you remember. This is how you remember me. I am Yehovah, your God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whose name became Israel. Mm -hmm. And so here we are saying, no, don't do anything related to the Jewish people. They, they represent God. And they, they were keeping these remembrances, these appointed times, so that one day all of us would still be remembering who Yehovah was. Right. And yet again, they were condemned for doing it. You know... These church leaders were not setting themselves in opposition to the Jews, but literally in opposition to God himself. Amen. You know, that's all there is to it. It wasn't the Jews didn't come up with these feasts. They didn't tell anybody to do these feasts. And ironically, they didn't really tell him. They just kept them for themselves. They, they weren't telling them, everybody yeah. else to do them. No, you they know? weren't really evangelistic, so to exactly. speak. They were just supposed to do it by example. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, we're, we're accused of legalism when, in fact, what, what, what is going on is this is idolatry. The, the, the people who are telling us not to do what God instructed us to do are accusing us of legalism, yet they are, they are now in idolatry, mm -hmm. because they are putting themselves above God's word. He instructed his people to remember him this way, not these are the Jewish things. Right. And, and we have joined his people. This yes. is what we do. This is what we do. And it doesn't and, and seem like it has to be that complicated, Gary. It doesn't Gary. <laughs> seem that complicated. I mean, and again, we've talked about, you know, the Sabbath is one of those feasts. Mm -hmm. We've talked about this at Great Lent, I think, if I remember. <laughs> I think it be so. be a private conversation <laughs> or on this podcast. But, you know, the, the Catholic Church even admits that they did not have biblical authority to change the Sabbath. But they did so anyway. And then say that the the, the um, Protestant Church is falling under their authority because they went, went along with they it. They went along with it, even though the Protestants were protesting the Catholic Church. Yeah. So there it is, you know, no biblical authority, but we're doing it anyway. So they're admitting to their idolatry, whether they know absolutely. or not. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know, so this pattern of persecution of all things deemed Jewish hold true for the institutions? Unfortunately, yes, it does. Mm -hmm. As the desire of, of political unity under the umbrella of Christianity became more and more important, Spain's large Jewish population became the target. Jews were required to convert or die. Some converted and others chose death. Gentiles who found, found to be engaged in the Jewish practices, as they call it, mm -hmm. suffered the same penalties. Right. So anybody who was doing anything that looked G Jewish to right. them would, would suffer the same penalties. I was reading, and I think I've mentioned it on this podcast before, a book um, about uh, it was Christopher Columbus's mm -hmm. Jewish roots or the mm -hmm. Jewish roots of Christopher Columbus. And I, I had a, uh, it had 
printed in there the edict of Ferdinand and Isabella for the expulsion of the Jews dated March 30th, 1492. That was part of the book. Mm. And so what I want to do is just, I, I, I took some quotes directly from that edict, and this was the one that was used to expel the Jews from Spain. Mm -hmm. And ironically, you learn that the Jews were expelled. The final day was um, the day that Christopher Columbus was supposed to be sailing out uh, from the ports. There were so many Jewish people at the ports trying to get out on that day. He actually had to sail the next day Mm because that was their deadline. Wow. Yeah, so yeah. interesting. So anyway, um, this is what that edict said. Whereas, having been informed that in these our kingdoms, there were some bad Christians mm. who Judaized and apostatized from our holy Catholic faith, the chief cause of which was the communication of Jews with Christians. And in speaking about these heretical Christians, right? Okay. It says great injury has resulted from the participation, society, and communication they held and do hold with Jews, who it appears always endeavor in every way they can to subvert our holy Catholic faith and to make faithful Christians withdraw and separate themselves therefrom and attract and pervert them to their injurious opinions and beliefs. Mm. And I was just reminded of this wording. It makes faithful Christians withdraw and separate themselves. Gary, you and I have often been accused of withdrawing and separating ourselves from the church. Mm -hmm. It's happened many times along my walk. And Here it is going all the way back to 1492, the same accusations. And I always say, well, I do not feel withdrawn and separated because I've found a community of people who believe like I do, you know, but, but do I stay connected with that body that is, is, this is a tricky one. And I think each person has to deal with this as God is showing them. But I, I felt that God was saying I needed to come out from that. I I understand what you're saying. You know, we, we have like minded believers, like hearted believers who we fellowship with, but doesn't, isn't every church claim that same thing. You go to a church because you want to be with like hearted believers. And as I've said many times before, there are many churches out there, good loving people uh, many who support Israel, many of them uh, who, are, who are involved in, in supporting Israeli ministries. And we're not condemning all people no. sitting in the churches. What we're trying to, uh, you know, just to just expose here is the, the result of this unbiblical thinking and how it has influenced the church still today. From thousands of years From ago. thousands of years ago, still showing its ugly face today. And so please don't get us wrong. And, you know, we're, we're just trying to, to help guide you through the, the obstacles that, of, to, to your faith, to the returning to the one true God. Exactly. And, you know, my favorite Bible verse, if you've been listening to, to us for any time, my people are destroyed by lack of knowledge. Right. Um, 
I believe that there are many people in the church who just don't know they don't yet. Know. I certainly didn't. No. I was absolutely no different. All of us had to come to a place. Exactly. In, in, the, in this, if we want to call it a movement or our fellowship, the right. people that we they think alike, we all had to come to a place where we said, okay, uh, you know, I believe with this revelation, I need to change my ways. Exactly. Yeah. And what's what's really interesting is though sometimes while we get accused of separating ourselves, I, I literally there are like forty one thousand denominations. I, every every single church separates itself exactly. from every other church based on what they have in common that they believe, right? right? Right. And so I think what we need in Christianity is a little dose of understanding like the Midrash in Ju- Judaism. You can have a difference of opinion and not be a heretic. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and you're right, 41,000 different denominations. Are we really that unusual? Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So going back to what was happening in Spain, eventually the Jews were deported, okay, in in 1492. Most of their property and wealth was confiscated by the state. So it does seem that maintaining money and power is always, always at the root of accusations of heresy, more so than any real concern for accurate theology. I don't know how much the king and queen cared about that. I think it was an effort just like Constantine to try to pull everybody together under that authority of God. I'm sure, Kathy, we can't, we don't know the hearts and minds of everybody involved in these movements, but I'm sure there were those who thought, just as Paul did, he was doing God's work right. at one time, right? But obviously they were in error, exactly. And, and you know, you know. So even during the Inquisition time, there was something called an edict of faith. Hmm. Um, when the Inquisition arrived on the city, city or town, the first thing they did was to present themselves to a local um, ecclesi- uh, ecclesi- e- ecclesiastical, ecclesiastical. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I used to say big... ecclesia. Ecclesia. You know? ecclesia. No, no, we're not talking that yet. Ecclesiastical and uh, secular authorities. Then in Sunday or public holiday mass, at the end of the parish priest sermon of the uh, recitation of the creed, the inquisitor read the edict of faith. This edict included a very long list of all heretical beliefs and behaviors. This was a detailed inventory of all the words and... Excuse me, I, the page is stuck. <laughs> okay, detailed inventory of all the words and attitudes and behaviors capable of revealing heretical opinions. This last helped the faithful learn how to recognize a heretic. So what they're doing here, right, is they're giving you a list. Yeah to identify heretical behaviors, heretical ideas, heretical inclinations. Right. So, so what, you're looking for, at your neighbors? Yeah, this, mm-hmm. this is going to pit you know, people against each other. It's going to, and it did. And it and did. people were exposed. And this is how, during the Holocaust, Jewish people were identified very similarly to some of these things right here in this list. One of them being observance of the Sabbath. You know, they would go and put their clean festival clothes on, cleaning the house on Friday afternoons and lighting candles. Well, your neighbor sees this and turns you in. Mm. Uh, I mean, that again, that how many Jewish people went to their death because of that same practice later on? This this was something that was done to, so you know, if you were a Christian, so called, or if a believer. I mean, I I don't know how to identify. Uh, I don't anymore. either. Right. Followers of the way. 
and you were observing the way God asked you to and observed the Sabbath, now all of a sudden you are a heretic. Uh, and same thing with keeping the feasts and festivals of, of the, the Jews. Quote unquote, <laughs> of the Jews, and particularly unleavened bread, which falls on Holy Week. Again, in conflict with so-called Easter. Exactly. So that one was particularly Mm -hmm. um, abhorrent to the church because it was in competition, I guess, with their their Easter. When they're trying to change your ways and you're you're sticking to God's ways, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another one was if you were someone who did not eat pork or a hare, a yeah. rabbit, strangled birds, etc., laid out in the Jewish so-called Jewish, Jewish law. law. But no, it's God's commands. You That's know, right. um, saying that uh, that the uh, dead. Now, this is no, I, I love this, this one. one. This is this is how it was that was spoken. It was worded, saying that the dead law of Moses is good. Now. <sighs> My gosh, if, if, the, if the law of Moses, which was given by God, written, by the way, by the finger of God, when you consider the Ten Commandments, that's part of what they would naturally be including here if you say the law of Moses. And they're saying, no, you can't say that's good. And that isn't that the same law that's now written on our hearts? It's exactly. Yeah, you I know. Mean, I mean, these are the things that you're. So if you're hard. if you're reading Psalm one nineteen, which over and over and over talks about how how beautiful you know uh, the, law, the, is the law is perfect and yes. good and a light and all of these things that David wrote about the law. Right. What? So I guess they couldn't read one nineteen Psalm one nineteen because it's all about how good the law yeah. the Torah. For yes. perfecting the soul. Yes. I, you know, that, I'm glad you brought that up because Psalm 119 was one of the places I went in my early journey when I said, all right, God, <laughs> you know, either, either I'm, I'm wrong, I, 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 my mis, I'm misunderstanding something, or your word has, uh, you know, is not consistent. Right. Right? I mean, you have inconsistencies in your word. You have contradictions. If, if the psalmist David says the word of the Lord is perfect... perfect. Or is it that the law has been done away with? Is it perfect or is it obsolete? Which yeah, is it? Right. You know, so if there, that's, a, that's a misunderstanding on our part. If God's consistent and he is, then we have to figure that out. Well, his law is perfect and it's not obsolete and we should still be uh, obeying the, 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 the instructions he gave us. I always think, Gary, it, it's very difficult to... We we speak the tr- what we believe God has shown us to be the truth, His revelation, uh, here on this podcast. We don't change any hearts. Only God changes right. hearts. So I find it, well, we can equip those who are coming along in this walk with, um, I'll call it, Torah apologetics, okay, for lack of a better okay. word. We can <laughs> equip people with Torah apologetics. Sure. But it's really the heart change that has to happen first. We can't change their hearts with any Torah apologetics. Okay, that's, that's a great point. We can't argue. Well, Paul really meant this. Paul really did mean something different than what the church thinks it is. But to go in and argue point by point to someone whose heart has who God hasn't revealed this to is is fairly worthless. You that, know, that's a great point. I mean, you know, Yeshua said, "If you love me." 
you will keep my commandments. So we have to question our heart condition. If we decide, no, I don't want to take that commandment to heart. Right. I'll, I'll obey that one. I won't kill anybody. But no, keeping the Sabbath, eh, that's too hard. Right. Well, what are we doing? We've beco- That's idolatry. Right. Become, we've become God. We know better than God. So again, I'm not saying you've done this intentionally in the no. audience. If you're listening and saying, well, no, I, I, I love God. I right. love Jesus. I want to do, I want to do what's right. Well, then consider what we're saying. Right. Don't be selective. We have to keep the commandments. And I would encourage the audience to go and read Psalm 119 because that heart of David, remember, Mm. David was a a man whose heart was after God, a man of God's own heart. Mm -hmm. And all of 119 is talking how beautiful and perfect the Torah is. That was a reflection of David's heart that God loved. And if we can read that and go, oh, I I agree with David, or would I disagree with David? You know, then God hasn't changed our heart yet. So to me, it's a heart condition before it's, if you've got the heart change, then you can delve in what else call the apologetics. Okay. Why does it appear that Paul is saying something different? Well, now let's look at that. Now that we've got the heart in the right place, the paradigm shift has occurred. Right. And that's exactly what I had to do myself as a teacher uh, of going, you know, before a congregation every Sunday. I had to know where if, if the word of God is true and, and consistent and and perfect and, and the law is perfect, then I then it had to be a problem in my understanding. Exactly. Not in God. But Kathy, you know what we're describing here? What are we describing? It looks like we're considered heretics. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's what it, it that's. That seems to be the pattern. That seems to be the pattern. And so I want to, we always talk about patterns, folks. Mm -hmm. That is extremely important because patterns put things in context of much bigger picture. And so what I want to ask is, do we still see the pattern of accusations of heresy coupled with Jewish persecution when we fast forward in time past, let's say, the Inquisition? Mm. The answer is, yes, Yes. we do, Gary. (laughs) So let's go to 1517. Martin Luther famously nailed his 95 theses to the door of the university in Wittenberg, Germany. His goal at that time, it was a noble one, to loosen the stranglehold that the Catholic Church had upon the faithful. The Catholic Church had maintained power for centuries by being the sole arbiter of the Christian faith. They didn't allow the people access to the Bible, and they created doctrine that only served to maintain and increase their money and power, right? So, for instance... You know, theses number 27 that was up there, it said they preach human doctrines who say that as soon as the money clinks into the money chest, the soul flies out of purgatory. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Martin Luther recognized the, the problem. There, there, yeah, there, there were errors. There were a lot of errors. So, you know, uh, kudos to him for recognizing that. But what was the rest of the story about Martin Luther? Mm. You know, he was seen as a founder of a new religious movement. We know it as Protestantism. Mm-hmm. Thus comes our uh, our Protestant faith, our Methodists, our, our Baptists, our Southern Baptists, 
just basically everything else that's not the the Roman Catholic Catholic faith, yeah, or right? Forty one thousand. Forty thousand nine hundred and ninety. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> minus one. Exactly. So so he was the beginner beginning of this religious movement. So he unleashed the power of the press, so to speak. This was Gutenberg's press in Germany. Okay, this was all happening interestingly in Germany, yeah. and there's a whole set of spiritual things created, you know, related to that. But Gutenberg was in Germany too. He had his press and his influence actually grew immensely in both religious circles and political ones. Um, the, the Catholics didn't like him, but right. everybody else thought, okay, there's something this here. Right. Yeah. But, but there was one problem for Luther when the Jews didn't convert to this new form of Christianity Luther became enraged. He thought that if he kind of cleaned this up around the edges, basically, right. um, that the Jews would come running to to this version of Christ that he presented. Yeah, right? And that didn't happen. That didn't happen. So when it didn't happen, happen, he became vehemently anti-Semitic. He published a pamphlet called On the Jews and Their Lies that called for the protection of of Christian society from Jewish influence and contamination. How would they do that? Burning uh, synagogues, destroying Jewish homes, confiscating Jewish holy books, banning uh, Jewish religious worship, and I'm going to put Jewish around each of these, right? right? Uh, the quotes. quotes. Yeah. Exp- uh, taking Jewish money and deporting the Jews. This was his response to the Jews not buying into, I guess. Buying into his changes. You know, I I just, you just reminded me of of something that I I read years ago. It's a quote from uh, historian Jules Isaac. And it's, he said, you know, the, the Jewish rejection of Jesus. And, and that again should be quote unquote, because it's the Christian version of Jesus. But the Jewish rejection of Jesus coincided with the Christian rejection of the law. Absolutely. Because because to ask them to reject the law would be to be asking them to rip their heart out. Right. And he says, go, he says, history records no such collective suicide. They, the, the Jewish people, and it goes back to Deuteronomy 13, they saw this, this Christianity as, as just polytheism, this right. different God, this, right. this God, this, this Jesus that had been made God that did not keep the Torah. That's right. And so, of course, they were going they to reject They had to that. reject that. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And we just, as Christians and within the church, we just have... We don't understand that to start with. You know, we don't understand that, uh, what they were responding to. Mm-hmm. The Jews know more of this history, Gary, than the Christians do. Yeah, yeah, because you know? because often I see it, uh, uh, zealous young Christians trying to, to you know, uh, work their way, a, a, a clever argument to convert in their minds Jewish people without any understanding of the history of all this history that we're talking about. Think about the inquisitions, the pogroms, all of this stuff that we've talked about. And they come in there, you know, with a a Christian, you're like, well-meaning, I know well-meaning, but ignorant of all of that, totally Totally ignorant of it. And, and so, uh, and trying to sell a version of Jesus that they are unable 
to accept. Uh, well, absolutely. A, a version of a Jesus that is totally disconnected from the God that they worship. And because the God that they worship gave them a set of instructions. And if this Jesus rejected those instructions, then how could he become, how could he be the son of God? That's right. That's right. And, and I, you know, we asked the audience the same question. How is it possible that a Jesus that we so say we worship would have done anything to be contradictory to his father? He didn't. He didn't. The word is replete with his references. I come to do nothing but, but what the, the father will of tells the father. me. The will of the father. Everything. My everything kingdom come, thy will be done. Amen. <laughs> Amen. So let's let's look at the result of what you know Luther's influence. I mean, if we fast forward to the late 1930s, early 40s, we see this strong influence of Luther on the Christian Church in Germany. For too many Christians, traditional interpretations of religious scriptures seem to support these prejudices that the church had replaced Israel in all its blessings. And of course, not the, not curses. the curses of conveniently. No, all the blessings of Israel, but don't take those curses. Replacement theology um, infiltrates much of the standard Christian thinking and serves as a source of very anti-biblical theology. Back then yeah. and still today. And still today. I yes. mean, you know, this this is what we're dealing with when we think that somehow the church has replaced Israel in the eyes of God. Mm-hmm. Now let's just let's look at a little history. Most Christians in Germany welcomed the rise of Nazism in nineteen thirty-three. Wow. And I've heard I've heard actual testimony of this. My sister-in-law's mother um, li- lived in Germany during the rise of, of Hitler. And they thought he was great, right? And and naturally, because I mean, this this was a this was a, a dying uh, country after World War One. Uh, they were they were struggling immensely, and so they were looking for a f- so-called messiah. Messiah. Yeah. So for for one, they were disillusioned with the chaos and the godlessness of the Weimar Republic, um, that that had held power since 1919, right after World War One. Mm-hmm. They were persuaded to support the Nazi Party by the statement on quote-unquote, positive Christianity. In Article 24 of the 1920 Nazi Party platform, it read like this. The party, as such, upholds the point of view of a positive Christianity without tying itself confessionally to any one confession. It combats, here it is, it combats the Jewish materialistic spirit at home and abroad and is convinced that they that a permanent recovery of our people can only be achieved from within on the basis of the common good before individual good. So we have this idea then of this positive Christianity. The Christians heard the word positive Christianity. Oh, they jumped like, whoa, okay, he's a Christian. And, 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 um, they were already anti-Semitic in their thinking that they had rep- what they had was better than what the Jews had offered. So, right. so this statement about combat- combating Jewish materialistic spirit, okay, um, fit. It, it, fit, it fit. It fit, and historically it fits. I mean, now you had 400 years of Luther's influence now had permeated Europe. And that's and what it, I was talking about, that wild thing of what was all happening in Germany. Yes. You know, Luther was there, right. and, and then Hitler was there. Yeah, there's a spirit, there's obviously, a spirit. That, that took hold. That You know, we talked about the, the return of the gods. Yes. There was a principality and a power there that over Germany that, that really pushed and influenced these individuals to do yes. his bidding. Yes. And and we yes. see that we see that uh, you know in in Germany with 
they, like I said, the influence of Luther for 400 years, there's already this anti-Semitic spirit. Then you have this, this trope that's included in this statement about their being materialistic. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they own, we hear this They today. own the world, the Jews own the world. Exactly, we hear yeah. it today. I, I've mentioned before, you, in some of the elements of the whole um, of um, Q, uh -huh. you hear this, this cabal, this Jewish cabal that rules the world, that runs the world, they own everything. And, 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 Good Christians, so-called, are are falling for this still today. Yes. They fell for it then, and they're falling for it today, yeah. that the Jewish people are responsible for all the ills of society. That's right. It's, it's, That's it's, right. It's part and parcel to all of this thinking. Mm. So what's, what was happening is that when you talk about that spirit, was the Nazis were just kind of carrying out what Luther said. Exactly. I mean, he, they, they, he gave the prescription and they, they carried yeah. it out. Well, well, some of them, you know, to destroy their books, burn yes. their synagogues, make them work at the sweat of their brow. Yes. You know, this was exactly what the Nazis carried out. Right. And once again, talk about ignorance in the church. The church knows the part about Luther nailing the, the theses to the door. Right. Good. They don't know the rest of it. No, you're you're exactly right. Mm -hmm. I've seen posts on on Facebook at the time uh, when you know it's the anniversary of the thesis being posted, and people celebrate Luther. Right. And I, I understand he started out on the right track, but I cannot celebrate him mm -hmm. because of this. Exactly. You know. So we've been talking about a pattern. We've looked at Constantine. We've looked at the Inquisitions. We looked at what happened to Tyndale in in, in Europe as people were. Uh, trying to do what was biblical, trying mm -hmm. to return to the word. But now let's jump forward to good old 2023, okay? <laughs> so I mentioned in our last pod podcast that my daughter and son-in-law had recently encountered a, okay, here I'm going to do air quotes, Christian man who angrily denounced them as heretics. And this began because they ordered turkey bacon, okay? Right. They were following the biblical dietary laws. While this extreme outburst that this man had, had what was out of the ordinary, okay? It seems to have been fueled by the ideas of replacement theology evident in a Christian ministry that the man followed. So I went to the ministry website, which I'm not going to identify, and I read the statement of beliefs. They seemed fairly standard Christian theology to me. It didn't ex appear extreme in right. uh, fairly orthodox Christianity. So I kept digging deeper and I found a podcast series about the Jewish roots movement about us. Okay. Mm -hmm. And you'll always find that <laughs> if you keep digging. You keep so, digging. A so, you know, I could spend hours and hours going over each opinion this man had that I disagreed with, but just suffice it to say that he reflected standard Christian orthodoxy, orthodoxy that clearly, clearly separates Christianity from Judaism, with Christianity being the superior faith. And as we've said before, Gary, you've said many times Christianity was born in divorce of Judaism. Yeah, I have. And it's because it's true. And it's exactly, it's ignored the warning of Paul when he said, do not become haughty. Do not, you know, the root supports you, not the other way around. That superiority, that Christian arrogance is something I despise. Right. And, yeah. you know, exactly, exactly. You know, so, so that's all, that's very important to um, keep in mind that, arrogance and yet we fall into it 
all the time. And, and unfortunately, all the and time. We, see, we, we see it and we're, we're you know, we're confronted oh, all, the time. all the time. All the time. So once again, we're not saying that the belief in the Hebrew Messiah Yeshua and his work on the cross is secondary to anything. It is central and critical to everything that the Hebrew scriptures point to. But the reality is, folks, we're grafted into the olive tree of Israel, not the other way around. Gentile, Gentile believers in Messiah joined the covenant relationship between God and Israel. God did not make any covenants with the Gentiles, but he does allow a way for us to participate in the covenant blessings through the Jewish Messiah. That's the bottom line. Exactly. So, Gary, Gary, we can say till we're blue in the face, you know, we, we keep the Torah and we hold Yeshua, the Messiah, as our Messiah. And for some reason, people hear the first part and they don't hear the second part. I, guess right. I, I, I could say it the other way around. I hold on to, to Jesus as Messiah and I keep the Torah commandments. They don't hear that either. <laughs> okay, It doesn't matter which order I hear it. Yeah. As soon as they hear keeping Torah commandments, they, the natural assumption is I, I do not believe Jesus is the Messiah, right. you know, and, 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 and we're trying to stress here and we've done it over and over again. We do believe that he is the Jewish Messiah. We we do. Right? It doesn't diminish him in any way, shape, or form. No, in it fact, actually, it, it makes it all better, I right? Believe it magnifies his role in our, and we're, we're, we're emulating him. That's right. That's what we're trying to do. That's right. So, you know, the point I'm try we're trying to make is that this separation of Jews and Christians has historically led to persecution of the Jewish people and anyone who does anything Jewish by those who call themselves Christians right. or part of the Christian church. Mm -hmm. For the most part, it's not the pagans who, who were persecuting these no, that's, Jews. That's a great point. It's not. It wasn't. it wasn't them. And I'm not saying there weren't cases where they weren't persecuted by pagans, but all of these examples that we spoke of, it was the institutional church. It was it was Christianity as it was known. Exactly. Absolutely. So we saw it in the Inquisitions. We saw it among the early church fathers. We saw it in the time of Martin Luther. And remember, Luther's influence was strongest in Germany. So obviously what happened with the Nazis attempt to wipe out the Jews, as we said, Eerily similar, it looked like he was carrying out their plans, you know, to do just that. So there is this connection here that happens when the Jews and Christians separated, the Jews and anything Jewish gets persecuted. Absolutely. And the, I guess the greatest example or the worst example we could, should say of that was the Holocaust. When, when, we, when we look at the Holocaust, when we look at how Jewish people view the Holocaust, it was a Christian orchestrated event. Absolutely. And that's, that, is, that is the tragedy of all this. And Christians don't know that the Jews they, think that. No, they don't. But I mean, I, I, my heart breaks every time I walk through um, Yad Vashem in Israel, the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem, and there's a placard there that talks about the Christian culpability in the Holocaust. Right. And my heart just aches every time. I've seen it, I don't, you know, probably you know, 30 times. And it, it aches every time I see it, you know, because mm -hmm. of this horrible past in the name of Christianity. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if we fast forward once again, 80 years to our current 2023, we have the same foundational flaws in church theology. The church still believes that Jesus started a new religion, one that is superior to the old, quote unquote, mm -hmm. Jewish one. 
How many times have we heard that Jesus was the first Christian? I mean, mm-hmm. I'm sure you've heard that, Kathy, right? right? He, he it, died a Jew and rose a Christian, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, and, uh, you know, in our last podcast, we explained that this was actually, you know, that this... If this was true. If this was actually true, that Jesus didn't qualify as the Messiah that was prophesied in the ancient Hebrew writings. It, he could not... Big problem. Big, big, big problem. problem. <laughs> then we're all in trouble. <laughs> So, you know, so here, here's, here's this Christian, Christian ministry leader's words about the Hebrew Roots Movement. This, this is the... This is the straight, straight, straight from, from, from the website. Right from the website. Let's read it. The view I'm going to represent in, is the view that Christian church has held for the time of, sin, held for the time of Jesus, or at least from the time of the Apostle Paul. Well, see... I know. <laughs> I, I want to say right, right off the bat, there was no Christian church at the time of Jesus That's or right. at the time of Paul. But you know, so he's already off pace. Okay. I would say from the time of Jesus on until the very modern times, when the Torah observant fetish came along. He calls it a fetish. Right. I say fetish because these people don't have any excellent reason for being enamored with all things <laughs> Jewish. We don't have an excellent reason. No, only the word of God. That's right. <laughs> Holy cow. All right. Where was I? Uh, they, they just became obsessed with Israel and the Jews and all things Jewish. That they, they became vulnerable to people who say, yeah, the law of the synagogue, the way that the Jews do things, their festivals, these all are important things to Christians to kind of restore. I love the way he talks. I know, great restoration, right? Kind of need to restore the thing. What? No, all, all things biblical? Right. All right. And he goes on, says, now they would, of course, say that these things have to be observed in a Christian manner. That is recognizing Christ as the final sacrifice and Christ as the one about whom the law speaks. But they would still have to keep the law. Hmm. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Okay, so we want to restore all things that God requires us to restore. And we want to keep his instructions and... He has a problem with this? He's got a problem with it. Obviously they do. He does. These these things are all ideas that downstream from the they're downstream from the false idea that God is finished with the Jewish people. Uh, that's see, that's that's where all this stems from. And exactly. This, this classic replacement theology exactly. is is Christian. Everything that he said is downstream of that concept. That's right. Everything is downstream of that, you know? Yeah. They, so, you know, he's, he's saying, and every, all, all of Christianity that says that, that the Jewish, um, that, that is finished with the Jewish and, and, and that Christianity is a new institution, uh, that, is, that Christianity is now the center of God's redemptive plan for the universe. This goes right back to where we were in, in Copernicus. Exactly. The exactly. church is the center of God's universe, and that's not the case. That's right. Well, they don't believe that this is, this, that while I personally don't believe that this Christian minister is, is a raging anti-Semite mm-hmm. or that he wants to throw Jews into the ovens, he is still espousing the ideology that has spawned these extreme hate-filled ways of thinking and that have caused much death and destruction. Right. It's- yeah, and that's what I'm saying. We're not saying this guy is a raging anti-Semite, but he doesn't recognize that these foundational beliefs that he holds are ones that have led to all of this anti-Semitic danger, a dangerous, destructive, deadly 
behavior throughout 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 centuries, centuries, centuries. right? They, they don't Millennia. Know. They don't connect it. They, you know that from for about I would say at least seventeen hundred years, and I know some of the schisms started before that, but from the time of Constantine, especially once he codified it. There's been this this extreme separation between mm -hmm. the so-called Christian Church and the Jewish people, when in fact this this was a movement within in Judaism, within Judaism <laughs> as we'll call it, within Judaism, the the way a sect, as Paul called it, a sect of of Judaism, and we it should never have been separated. Now, did did I catch God by surprise? I obviously no, not. No, he no. Knows. But I believe it's incumbent upon us who see what happened to restore the connection. It, it is Acts, you know, 321. The restoration of all things Amen. means that everything is out of whack and that it all has to be restored. That means like the way that we've been responding to God's word is not is not is not based on the truth our understanding is something different it all has to be re restored and we shouldn't be so arrogant to think that we always have gotten it right i think the first thing we need to do is look in at ourselves and go is there something that i may have not gotten right right you know is there some place where i can learn something Kathy, i i knew i had to do uh, that. exactly uh, exactly it, you... it's it's quite humbling experience because oh, yeah. then you recognize Oh, I was wrong. Yeah, I was wrong, and 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 this way of thinking has caused many many problems for the Jewish people uh, throughout time. So that's a that's a, a lesson in humility, folks. It really you is. You know, and you know, and I'm saying, oh, we're so humble and great. I'm just saying, it is a humbling experience to come to this in, yeah. in knowledge. I mean, and you can accuse me of being philosemitic if you will. But I, <laughs> so I look, be it. So be it. But I feel that we have such a great debt to pay. Yes. Uh, not only, not only as Paul said, you know, in Romans, uh, I think it's 15, uh, uh, 15, yeah, 15, I think where he speaks of the, uh, you know, the debt that we owe to Jewish people. That's right. But because of the, 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 the horrible, uh, treatment of Jewish people by Christianity, we have to be different. Exactly. We yeah. Paul made that statement long before those other things happened, and he was already saying we had a debt. Yeah. Now we really have a now debt. We really, we've yeah. compounded the debt. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I'm going to try to bring this to a conclusion here. You know, the reality is that God determined how He wanted to be worshipped, and these instructions are recorded in His Word, the Torah. Since the Garden, Satan has always encouraged men to ask, "Did God really say that? Did He really say don't eat from that tree? Did He really say don't eat that BLT? Did He really say honor the Sabbath? Did He really say marriage is between one man and one woman?" You know, God gave his instructions to Israel, to the Jewish people. And while they have certainly been far from perfect in keeping these instructions, millions of Jewish people have died just because they have kept these instructions. And those who are not Jewish, but who have chosen to join themselves to Israel and the Jewish people, just as Ruth did, and said, your people will be my people, your God will be my God. They, too, have suffered for their obedience to God's word. And historically, the great majority of these people have suffered and died at the hands of the institutional church under the auspices of Christianity. 
Gary and I keep talking about looking for patterns. The pattern we have been discussing is the attempt by Satan to destroy those who love Jehovah and seek to obey his word. If this is really a pattern, it will hold true into the future. Does the Bible give us evidence of this pattern in the future? The answer is yes. The book of Revelation, chapter 12, describes the dragon, that is Satan, who is pursuing the woman, Israel, who gives birth to the male child, who is Yeshua. And in verse 17, it says, Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. Mm. Historically, it's been the Jews who have been known for keeping God's commands, and it's been Christians who have held fast to their testimony about Jesus. In this verse, it seems to be describing a group of people who both keep the commands and hold to the testimony of Jesus. This is the group that Satan hates and tries to destroy. He always has. Folks, we want to be part of this group, the group that Satan hates and God cherishes. These are the heretics. Welcome to the club. Shalom, everybody. Thank you for listening. Please join us next time on Torah Talk.